0: Some men are forced to conceal their pain as they struggle to reach from darkness into the light. A few, however, find that darkness is only a concealing shadow, better to hide their disreputable intent. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and Russian nightclub comedian, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Your feature event is The Saint, a 1997 romantic thriller starring Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue. Based on the character created by Leslie Charteris. And I am joined by a transcontinental connection to my guest, the co host of Nose's own The Sitcom Club and Java Cakes for Proust, Tilt Ariser. Hello, Tilt. Hello, Jeremy. It's very gl- nice of you to uh, join me for this very special intercontinental cinema limbo. Yes, it is nice of
1: me, isn't it? Yes, it is. I I thought it would be too obvious to say, it's nice of you to have me here.
0: (laughs) Well, we chose a movie each for the two shows that we're recording together. The movie that you chose we're going to do at a slightly later date, because I've got other things in my pipeline. But um, we're starting with a movie that I chose. It's something that is very close to my heart. I recall... During my summer holiday, when I was 16, living on an airbase with its own cinema, going to my very first aerobics class and being absolutely shattered. But my reward afterwards was to go to the base cinema and see the new movie that was on. And I fell in love with it immediately. And it's been very special to me ever since. And it is... The Saint, starring Val Kilmer and Elizabeth Shue. And I was shocked to discover that there are some people who don't regard this as one of the greatest films ever made.
1: It was a financial success, apparently. It was just, it scored very poor critically. And there are a number of reasons. I I will confess straight up, I had the worst possible reaction to this, which is no strong feelings one way or the other. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like, ah, yes, that was... That was a two-hour 90s action film.
0: Well, that's one reason why I thought you'd be perfect to cover this for Cinema Limbo, and why I've been holding this back for a while, is um, it would be advisable for me not to be in the room with the guest in case I was compelled to strangle them.
1: I'm not down on it. It's not like it's a piece of cinematic filth (laughs) that should never have been made. And really, the main complaint about it is that they take the name from the source material... And barely anything else. I think they made that part of the marketing. It's The Saint, everybody. I mean, the previous incarnation of The Saint, I think, had been a television series circa 1990 with Simon Dutton. So it's not that like the character had completely fallen out of use.
0: No, he seems to have been popping up fairly regularly in the, in the media consciousness. I know that you've looked into the background of Simon Templar a little. Uh, so what can you tell me about that?
1: My knowledge of The Saint comes from a radio series called The Radio Detectives, presented by Jeffrey Richards, which became a kind of comfort food listening for me. If I ever needed to get to sleep and just needed a comforting voice chuntering in the background. So I've listened to this series many times, and he does a show about The Saint. And he talks about the character's origins... And the way the character develops, because Tartarus started writing, I think the first book is 1932. I believe it's early in the Well, yes, actually, there's a false start. There is a story, I think Meet the Tiger might be as early as 1928. Yes, I think so. But he disarmed that. You're right, 32, I'm, I'm thinking of the story I was listening to, a radio adaptation was from 32. So initially The Saint is definitely a criminal, kind of romantic. The Robin Hood of modern crime is the tagline used in the radio series in the 40s and 50s. He's then repurposed to give him, he's still a thief, a gentleman thief who steals from criminals and takes revenge on criminals. A kind of shades of hustle, is that the show? I was going to make a comparison with modern television. I'm out of my
0: depth now. I've literally never seen Hustle. I can can find myself to BBC Two. He's on the other side of the law.
1: For some reason, he's famous. I don't quite understand that. Every version I listen to, it's like, My name's Simon Temple. Oh, The Saint! But how can you be a famous thief and still be at large. I know there's this whole thing that th- the, the crimes can't quite be pinned on him, but you think that would be more of a liability than an asset.
0: Well, there was... Um, uh, as well as the books, there was a series of films that started relatively early. And those are fairly successful in their day, I believe.
1: He starts very quickly in radio, Irish radio. It wasn't RTE, it was, and, and I, I don't have enough Gaelic to be... Entirely sure how to pronounce it, but Irish Radio did the character very early on, very early 30s. And of course, there's films with m- George Sanders possibly being the film saint, and it was played by somebody Hayward before him and Lewis Hayward. And his brother, um, Tom Conway. George Sanders' brother played it. George Sanders' brother played it on the radio, that's it. It was the falcon he took over in films if there's a, if there's a famous detective of the 30s chances are Tom Conway's played it at some point so that sense is getting into he, initially he gets he's definitely the english gentleman he has a bunch of upper class friends and a butler called orris and an on again off again girlfriend then when we're getting into the george sanders movies he's he's living in america but he's still kind of the english gentleman and Oris is replaced by an ex-gangster called Hoppy Uniet. We get a bit of Nazi busting in the 40s. And then after that, we get the character that Roger Moore played. He's <laughs> by himself. He's He's drifting around the world, living in high-class hotels, and getting involved in adventures. I think he's less criminal than initially he was, and... I watched one of the black and white Roger Moore Saints and he's actually doing a very slight American accent. I imagine that's
0: just for the sake of exports.
1: But by the time it goes to colour, the Saint is, is English again. But by that point, it's very generic ITC. He's the, the scripts they used, it could have been Man in a Suitcase, it could have been Jason King. They will get a bit interchangeable. And I think it's the Roger Moore series that the movie's trading off of.
0: There was another radio series, I believe, with, was it with Vincent Price? Yes, yeah.
1: He's American, but he's very East Coast educated, so he's he's faintly mid-Atlantic.
0: I always used to think that Vincent Price was English because his accent is so cultured and refined. He sounds very public school. Well, he I... comes
1: from the period when that's what an American actor sounds like. People like Hans Conried and Edward Everett Horton. They've got these faintly English sounding voices because they come from a school of acting that teaches you that's, that's what you need for that declamatory style. And as that shifts, they're kind of stuck playing d- down the cast list playing stiff characters well...
0: or Nazis. Well, apart from Vincent Price. Well, Vincent Price
1: had an interesting thing when there's that brief period where he's meant to be a heartthrob and his voice is just too strange. So then he becomes the hero's best friend and he drifts for a while until he gets into horror and finds his niche. I really like Vincent Price's scent, though. He just purrs, he's flamboyant.
0: I'm always interested in people playing against type and even though he was as you say he was more of a romantic lead at the time the idea that you know the the great horror actor Vincent Price playing a, a dashing daredevil hero there's something very appealing about that just for, just for me i've always wanted to see a romantic comedy where the hero is christopher walken <laughs> <laughs> because i think yeah he'd be great because he's really charming and he can dance and women find him beguiling that makes perfect sense why not have vincent price as you know, a racing fast cars and, you know, punching bad guys, or them just going, oof, because it's a radio show. And, you know, we haven't mentioned Ian Ogilvie. Well, we try and avoid that generally, don't we? Well,
1: my childhood memory of the Ian Ogilvie scent is really enjoying the opening titles and then losing interest in the show because it wasn't about a stick man who had
0: adventures. <laughs> Those opening titles, are that's, yes, just another 50 minutes of that. That's funny because... Um, When ITV4 started about 10 years ago, um, the Roger Moore series ran on Wednesdays at 7, I remember, and I actually enjoyed it, and I I wound up watching it regularly. But I only watched the first episode of Return of the Saint because the episode just couldn't live up to that amazing opening title sequence and that fantastic theme tune. Was it France or Italy?
1: They had a different theme tune which actually described the process of watching the TV show. (laughs) Taking it easy and it had the lines I'm going to sit at home and watch a program when it's on. <laughs> yes, that's it. And song. then the chorus goes, Watching the Saint Now. Watching the Now. Here is the Saint Now
0: <laughs> It's the yeah, I've heard that and it is the strangest song. It's the strangest theme tune you can imagine. Because you could just substitute the name of any other program and it would work. It uh, written by the same people who wrote the themes
1: for Doctanian and Willy Fogg. Well, those were Spanish. It was written by the DeAngelis brothers.
0: Ah. I was... I just, speaking of Willy Fogg, I was surprised to discover that there was a second series based on other <laughs> based <laughs> on other Jules Verne books. So it's Willy Fogg, The Journey to the Centre of the Earth along with all the other characters from around the world in 80 Days. And it's apparently the whole thing is, it's so popular in Spain that they've had a live-action musical with people in sort of semi-Lion King outfits. I knew about the second series. I didn't know about the musical. I've seen pictures of the actor playing Willy Fogg in costume, and it looks like a cross between a school play and the Wicker Man. <laughs> And it's, obviously it's supposed to be for a family audience, but I thought, that's just a bit too creepy. Particularly when he starts singing and marching across a tiny globe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a number of choices of characterisation to take the scene in for the 90s.
0: Well, there's, uh, there's, there's two other TV versions later in the 80s, I remember. There was the Simon Dutton series that everyone's forgotten which was, I think it was six TV movies. And there was also a pilot for American television.
1: Oh, yes, with a moustache. I mean, there was an actor attached <laughs> to the moustache, but when I looked and did a Google image search, that was a thing that leapt out at me. Looked like Magnum.
0: I was just about to say that he looked like Magnum. So both of those died the death, meaning that the, the property of the saint was somewhat in hibernation. There were plans in the early 90s to launch a new series of saint movies um sydney pollock was approached to direct the script was to be by stephen Zalian, and i believe ray fines was being lined up to play simon templar but there wasn't sufficient interest and it wound up falling apart a couple of years later however new producers came on board and it started to get moving again and the result was in 1995 a draft script by Jonathan Hensley for a new Saint movie that was eventually rewritten by Wesley Strick after Val Kilmer was cast quite a few actors I know were up for the role of Simon Templar. have you heard about this because it's the most insanely diverse pool I have cast- a
1: list in front of me but if you can add more names and I- I'd heard that Ralph Fiennes just read the script and said it wasn't anything that anybody else wasn't doing it Yeah, wasn't distinctive enough for
0: him I can understand that because um, in the early 90s he was still virtually an unknown it wasn't until Schindler's List I think that he really made his name and in fact I was um, listening earlier to I was very disappointed that how did this get made possibly my favourite movie podcast apart from this one had covered in its new episode The Avengers the other great 90s movie based on a British 60s TV show that has been covered in cinema limbo. And it turns out that Rafe Fiennes signed on to do that before The English Patient came out. So before he was even a bankable name. Right. Which might explain why he's a bit miscast in that.
1: Well, The Avengers are The English Patient, because I'd like to hear the, <laughs> the argument that <laughs> Fiennes should... Yeah, um, if we can just talk briefly about The Avengers.
0: Now, this is where you're going to be glad of having an ocean between us.
1: His steed is so sour... I think he's too stiff He sneers the, Somebody somewhere in it Has has like bowler hat, English gentleman Well they're all stuffed shirts aren't they
0: Yeah it's that It's the English reserve and the unclappability That I think they overplay And I think the problem is that for the most part Apart from a couple of the actors The movie is overwhelmingly made by Non-English people So it's a Foreigners, inverted commas view of stereotypical englishness and it goes too far it that it's too stiff and too mannered and everyone's drinking tea all the time which winds up looking insane yes and the the
1: macaroons and
0: the macaroons i didn't really have a problem because it's only in two scenes
1: I, I don't know just that just boils <laughs> it's just stuck out at me I've i've only seen the movie twice once the week it came out because I thought I'm going to have to see this movie now or I will never see it because it will definitely not be still on screens next week
0: yeah it was, fu- it was funny how everyone knew it was going to flop I, I saw it on, in the cinema in Swindon and there were two other people in the screen but I, I love it and I've owned four copies of it it looks go- beautiful it looks fantastic and if there's some really great stuff in there Sean Connery is a fantastic villain Jim Broadbent is great as mother there's some really nice sharp dialogue there's some some subtlety in the script with um, a skein of shakespeare references and lewis carroll references all the way through there's a nice
1: idea that then comes around and bites them which is that that thing that they noticed that in the original avengers series london was deserted <laughs> Which is okay for some of the initial scenes when they're doing research, but then at the end,
0: how it feels made, weirdly hollow. How did this get made? Picked up on this, and I've I've written on their message board that there's a there's a reason for this. It's just the TV series did it because they didn't have the money, and the movies done it because they're copying the format of the TV series. So there, there's a reason for it, but it doesn't really work. But Keely Hawes is in it.
1: Actually, no, I was going to say we've gotten off track, but no, we haven't, because why did The Saint get made? And it's part of that whole wave of 90s revivals of 60s TV shows, or in one case, a 50s TV show. I got my list here, because The Fugitive, I think, kicked it all off.
0: Oh, yeah. That's the one I think everyone agrees is genuinely a really good movie. That's really the one, though, when you can strip a lot
1: of the recognisable iconography out of it. You can set it in the 90s, but there's enough of a solid core concept. So you can basically... You can you can make a 90s movie out of the essential plot. frame for murder, one-armed man, somebody's after him, even though he didn't do it.
0: Yeah, it goes on the run to clear his name. But
1: there's no particular plot... There's no particular acting style that needs to be stuck to. There's no distinctive look. There's nothing oddly dated that you still have to stick
0: to. To this day, The Fugitive doesn't look like, like it's dated, really. Even though it's kind of an early 90s period piece, it's still a really, really strong film. I haven't seen Maverick, although it's a Richard Donner film, so I should, because I think Richard Donner is one of the great, unfairly neglected directors.
1: Do we count Sergeant Bilko? Yes. Okay, we're counting Sergeant Bilko. Because it's really, the boomers are hitting a certain age, and we can try and sell them the brands they grew up with, but marketed and remolded, remolded. That's the thing. There's remakes, reboots. And then you really get the remold, which is we've kept the name of the thing you remember, but then we've had to hollow it out, to sell it to people younger than you.
0: Or they've taken away an element, a key element that they don't think is going to work because I'm in the case of Sergeant Bilko. It's Phil Silver's. And it's not going to work because he's dead. And um, you can't have a dead person in the lead role of a movie. Lost in Space, 1998. Sorry, unless it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, Lost in Space is a really terrible idea for a movie because it doesn't work at all.
1: I I thought it worked up until the point that it started having a plot. There's a bit where they they take off and they land somewhere and they find a cute object cute creature and then and then it's like oh hang on a minute we've got to tell a, a,
0: a story we've got to have a character arc we have to actually have a beginning middle and end of a, of a two hour story in a based on a TV series that didn't really sort of go anywhere or do anything it's just, I think for the same reason that they never did the time tunnel because there is literally nothing you can do with that other than do it as a TV show the mod squad I've seen that is it any good it's alright. I mean it one I think it has one benefit in that Claire Danes is in it and she's great in everything.
1: I just remember the knives being out saying you you can't it's 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 nonsensical because you had they had to explain mod at the beginning, didn't they?
0: That really should be the name for like the tech support section of like <laughs> an electronic shop that do like adjustments to your PC. Well Best Buy over here have the Geek Squad. Well, I've seen Chuck, so I, I know what that's based on. But um, it makes more sense to do that than to make a movie out of it.
1: It seems to me the obvious idea for the Mod Squad would be to do a Brady Bunch. That's, another, that's why I've forgotten the list. A Brady Bunch with it. And basically you have these police young people attached and they're, they're going in investigating 1990s youth hangouts dressed like it's the
0: 70s. Well, in a sense, that's what the Jump Street movies have done.
1: Oh, right. I was at... See, I don't really watch movies that are in colour. <laughs> Bad enough, I had to watch a talkie. <laughs> uh,
0: back in my day, it was all magic lanterns. What else have you got there?
1: My favourite Martian, I, I, about which I know nothing. I just know it exists and existed once. I think if I really wanted to, I could watch it
0: on Hulu. Don't feel pressured. And the Wild Wild West. Oh! Yeah, I saw that in the cinema. That was, um... That was, that was, that was... Yeah.
1: Well, that go- that goes on the <laughs> list of uh, make steampunk and die. <laughs> There's, has there ever been a steampunk blockbuster that people actually flocked to
0: see? Um, Titanic? Was that steampunk? <laughs> Well, what do you think was coming out of those ship's engines?
1: <laughs> Candy floss. There wasn't... Yeah, but there wasn't the... Yeah, there's the steam. Where's the punk? Where's the
0: science fictional That's Leonardo element. DiCaprio. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, I think the reason is because it's so weird that the, the whole aesthetic of steampunk, that it requires a lot of investment by a studio, and they're a bit nervy of something that looks that odd, and that requires a leap in terms of audience engagement.
1: Yeah, I just don't think the the mainstream audience is there for
0: the idea. No, I mean we've had *League of Extraordinary Gentlemen*, which managed to kill the career of Sean Connery, which is quite an impressive feat. *Jonah Hex*. Have you? Yes. Uh, I haven't. S- it's the only blockbuster I know of that clocks in at a lean hour and twelve minutes, <laughs> including credits.
1: Didn't they do like a clock punk version of *The Three Musketeers* that?
0: And yes worked. and that was a yeah. hit that was a hit actually that was Paul W.S. Oh, Anderson right, okay, so,
1: um, so that's it It's they're just not it, setting these films early enough
0: yeah they should do it in like the middle ages with like Leonardo da Vinci on his little flying machine oh no that's Hudson Hawk isn't it yeah which proves the rule
1: so the one I missed off the list was Mission Impossible
0: and the thing there is that that's mainly a Tom Cruise vehicle hmm it's not really capitalising on the idea of it. But, I mean, if you were to talk to young people, the the young people, the youth, these days, if you were to say Mission Impossible, they wouldn't be aware, probably be aware of it as a TV show.
1: But the first Mission Impossible movie is definitely a sequel to the original TV series. And there is a reason Peter Graves did not come back. Yes, I know. Yes. But it, it is at least sort of... Say, right, here, here we draw a line under the 60s Mission Impossible. So it started out as something that had its roots in 60s soil.
0: But then it turned into something much more 90s. I actually think I think the first Mission Impossible is a very good movie. It's a really slick, well-made thriller with a really strong plot. I remember there was a whole thing at the time about people saying that the plot of the movie was incomprehensible. It's not. It's just more complex than the action path that you're usually fed. In the same way that I've had to draw diagrams for people to explain the plot of Inception. And not to stupid people either.
1: Well, there are people who don't understand the plot of the producers. It's really difficult explaining the plot of the producers to somebody who doesn't understand. But how can you make money off a flop?
0: Well... I th- and the rest of the night gone. I think it's partly because it's not explained very well in the movie. The strength of the movie is not in explaining accountancy fraud. It's in <laughs> it's in having two roguish characters who you like despite being criminals. But see, well, in-
1: see fortunately this come, th- that movie was made before too many test screenings, too much focus grouping, otherwise if the producers had been made in the nineties. You would have had way too much time, I think, taken up with the accountancy.
0: Well, the, the other thing is that the producers was being left on the shelf because no one would release it, and it wasn't until Peter Sellers intervened that it actually got released. But, of course, test screening played a huge role in the making of The Saint. Oh, the two endings, yes. We'll get, yes, don't, don't, don't yeah. spoil it. And the other connection is with Mission Impossible is that uh, Chris Morris alumnus David Schneider is in both of them.
1: <laughs>
0: yes! As one-shot comic
1: relief, it's really the one thing that the one sort of sweet plum that works for me for American blockbusters is a that guy.
0: Like when um, James Bachman from the Mitchell and Webb look turned up in um, Transformers: Age of Destruction, Age of, Age of Extinction, as a cool scientist partnered with Sophia Miles. Because we have Julian rhys in, in Julian rhys in the Saint, yeah, and Emily Mortimer.
1: And the best part of Star Wars The Phantom Menace is Celia Emery. Where's Celia Emery? She's um, flying one of the flying... Is it the X-Wing fighters? No,
0: in The the Saint.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. I was just... I wish. So, yeah, so in the middle of all this, we have The Saint. It gets...
0: So I just want to say, The Phantom Menace has the most hilariously eclectic cast list of any movie I've ever seen. Liam Neeson, Kira Knightley... Greg Proops and Celia Imrie as a fighter pilot and Andrew Seacom and Andrew Seacom yeah as a, as a space Jew <laughs> yes but USA in the middle of all of this carrying on we have the saint
1: and so they're faced with that idea of right what do we keep to capitalise on the characters people have people have known him what do we jettison in order to bring in the young people And what they keep is Simon Templar. And he's a thief.
0: He's a Robin Hood of modern crime. And
1: everything else goes.
0: Well, what else... uh, What else is there, really? Really,
1: uh, being a suave adventurer who lives a high-class lifestyle and specifically targets what what in the stories
0: he, he refers to as the ungodly... Well that makes him a bit churchy although he's called a saint so We well, see
1: that makes him a bit churchy but in here he's dropping the names of catholic saints left right and center
0: Yes but it's more in terms of the knowledge rather than any underlying belief because he doesn't show demonstrate any kind of convictions that one might term religious I mean but if if he's going after people who are ungodly that indicates a more um,
1: well, no, he's using it as a very snarky phrase. He's, he, oh, I see. He just means villains. People who have a lower moral standard than he does. So it's just its just a term he uses. He,
0: it basically, it's what he says instead of Mark. Oh, I see. Well, Philip Noyce does a very good commentary on the DVD where he talks in detail about his concept behind the, the film and why he was attracted to it in the first place and he was in fact a, a big fan of The Saint from a very young age um, reading the books when he was a kid in Australia and he was intrigued by the notion of the origin of the character and although this has been cheapened I think the idea of where, where the character comes from because we've had so many reboots and restarts of classic characters in recent years but this is one that gets there before almost all of them and shows a very clear arc in terms of how the character develops from being a thief for hire to being the brighter buccaneer himself
1: the problem is is that there's no saint too yeah so we spent 2 hours watching a film of a saint who isn't really a saint yet
0: but he is one by the end
1: but it's like it's all, all sizzle and no stick for somebody who wants to watch an expensive movie of The Saint. it like, a bit a bit like the Daniel Craig Casino Royale being the only James Bond film in I
0: existence. Was, I was literally about to mention Casino Royale because it's not until right at the end that he says Bond, James Bond. And it's all the making of the character.
1: It's all about him earning his theme tune. I interviewed David Arnold, and one thing he mentioned is the chords of "You Know My Name" and the chords of the James Bond theme were very similar, or if not identical. Oh! So there's little. Bit, if you see him doing something a little bit Bondish, the James Bond theme chords will kick in, but then go off a bit. So every every time he's getting close to becoming James Bond, the music is indicating. So that's it. He There's it. a bit like he gets a fancy car. Oh yeah, and the the strings go dun, 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 dun. They they go off and it's nearly Bond, but not quite.
0: I think the Casino a terrific movie, though.
1: I loved it as well, and you see, I'm more I'm more interested in the books. James Bond. So I I like Timothy Dalton best, which I know is a nice kind of a tiresome contrarian opinion, but but so I had a lot of investment in Casino Royale not being bad and I was knocked out by it.
0: I'll give you and the listener a bit of a spoiler preview. Later this year I want to do a James Bond film properly for Cinema Limbo and it's going to be licensed to kill right because it's one of the best it's the truest of the books while not being a direct adaptation and also it's the biggest flop <laughs> yes yeah I,
1: I had a friend who got all the the dvds and i i watched them all and License to kill was the only one i then went out and bought for myself I, afterwards I, I did pick up living daylights and on a secret service but License to kill was the only one that i wanted to watch again he cries! He cri- Bond cries, finally!
0: Oh, yes, he does, isn't he?
1: I know he cries at the end of On Emergency Secret Service, but it's it's like he cries about something not quite as high stakes. And of course, Bond, Bond's really northern as well.
0: Which is weird, because Dalton's Welsh. Yes. <laughs> It's
1: it's like um, did did did. Timothy Dalton never play Heathcliff. I know he played Mister. Yes, he did. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering if it's like he he got fixed on his Bronte accent. <laughs> it's just that line where it's like it's a good job you turned up. Things are about to get a bit nasty.
0: Yeah, he does say that. Yes, maybe he just forgot how to do the voice.
1: Nasty. One of the things on the list for us to is do it? for Jeffy Kicks of Proust is a film called Hawks, which is written by Roy Clark of Leicester the Summer Wine fame, starring Timothy Dalton. It's what he did between
0: Bond films.
1: Oh. Is it
0: action-orientated, or is it about you know, a shop in Doncaster?
1: It's it's about life and death, and coping with one while surrounded by the other. That's Licence to Kill. It's, it's about a cancer patient trying to get his
0: end away. That is not something I would expect from Roy Clark. That does sound interesting.
1: Roy Clark's really... In- yeah, Roy Clark is interesting. There's so much more to him than his successes. But he does have a tendency to... stick with a certain style once he... once it pays off. I think he does as is told, actually, by producers. So, uh, all the different people who were asked to play The Saint, because you said that he had this incredibly wide-ranging
0: list. Yes, um... As I recently told my mother, it is the only role that has been offered to both Hugh Grant and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And one of those makes sense. I can understand why they would go to Hugh Grant. I can't understand why they would go to Arnold Schwarzenegger and think, yeah, he's going to be perfect as a cat burglar because no one's going to see him coming. He casts a shadow across an entire city.
1: It's deeply frustrating when you see lists of people who were considered and you don't know at what meeting who made the suggestion or necessarily why. There's a story about um, Red Fox, you know, from Sanford and Son, and he was negotiating with NBC some contract. And part of eventually this, he, he he wanted to guest host the Tonight Show, that wasn't, something that Carson would allow so he managed to get the concession if Johnny Carson leaves the Tonight Show Red Fox's name must come up at the meeting it was a contractual obligation and when Johnny Carson left the Tonight Show to satisfy legality Red Fox's name was mentioned as a replacement even though he'd died <laughs> <laughs> So you, you, there's no exact way of telling who's come up with Schwarzenegger or what stage are they at. Are they really in the doldrums where it's like, for God's sake, just get something shot with somebody bankable?
0: Yeah. Well, the um, the other three names I'm aware of are a bit more sort of middle ground, and that was Johnny Depp, back when no one would put him in movies at all, rather than him being in all the movies all the time. Uh, Kevin Costner and Mel Gibson. Who was also considered to play uh, John Steed.
1: Yeah, I remember Robbie Coltrane's name going around attached to Steed at one point as well. But again, you don't know who's made the suggestion and why. I think,
0: I think that might have been it's, it's like that
1: whole thing of um, Peter Snow's name coming up in meetings about casting James Bond.
0: Or Ranulph Fiennes. Yes! who was told that his hands were too big and he had a face like a farmer.
1: (laughs) So you've read a draft of the script because I've heard things about the different drafts it went through. At one point, Tom Cruise was interested, apparently, Tom Cruise was interested in the early 90s, and then they also looked at Alec Baldwin.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Tom Cruise tends, even today, tends to be attached to it... All, all kinds of major projects so I'm sure that his name would have stuck to it at some point and Alec Baldwin the same it's, it seems to be similar to with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger so there's a, that that's a name that'll work that'll sell this reasonably untested property to Peoria or Warwick.
1: but I'm hearing all kinds of different ideas for that at some point there was this idea that it was going to be the son of the saint so they can make him very american
0: that that doesn't really come across in the the script the script
1: is right you see i'm i'm aware of i'm just aware of like things that were said about earlier drafts at one point he's an ex us marine oh, who had felt God. he'd lost all sense of honor and pride <laughs> another one construction worker in pittsburgh <laughs> he's, what he's this yeah, it's basically th- there was this was some faint idea that was going around that Roger Moore might briefly appear as the original Simon Templar, and find out that he had a son who was a construction worker in Pittsburgh, and then we could just like go off with this American who calls himself the Saint because his dad was the Saint.
0: But well, if you're going to do that, you might as well make him a fucking zombie. <laughs> the script I read generally hues pretty close to the plot of the finished movie but it does differ dramatically in terms of how the characters are presented and that's the keystone i think of why i love the film so much and it's the character work particularly since in the write-up on cinema limbo website for this i've described this as a romantic thriller rather than action adventure tv adaptation or anything like that No, it's very specifically a romantic thriller because the keystone is the characters and the, their relationship—a slight, like brief encounter with, with no guns. Yeah, it's, see, if yeah. this
1: was just called <laughs> the martyr, and he was called John Rossi, and never mentioned the name Simon Templar. I think this would have a higher
0: critical stock. I think that's the problem. It was people were less willing to accept. Such a radical change to a but character. But I think that they, they have they a point. I think well. you have
1: a point. If somebody says, Here, everybody, here's the saint, and it isn't the saint, I can't entirely blame people for rejecting it on those grounds because it's
0: a bit and switch. But if the character has gone through so many changes over time, from the Robin Hood of crime to being an international playboy to changing nationality, I don't see there's a major problem. But that that thread. The thing is, is that even
1: when he's the Robin Hood of crime, he is a playboy. He is a high living, suave. He's pretty suave. Man of leisure, who gets involved in adventures. He gets less criminal, but that's never really lost. Even when he's mildly American, even when he's mid Atlantic, he lives in the best hotels, and you give him a sidekick who can take care of some of the rough stuff. And once you take that away, I think your claims to having the Saint have fall to bits. Even when you've got Ian Ogilvy, who seems to wear flares, and I don't doubt him one of the Return of the Saint, but he's probably wearing a safari suit at
0: some point. He's still a charmer. Well, it helped that he was incredibly good looking. I mean, he looks like... Roger Moore started out as a knitwear model. You look at Ian Ogilvy, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you were allowed to wear the real clothes."
1: Another thing that's mentioned about the character is that he has this very innocent smile.
0: Yes, I've seen that. Would you say that about Val Kilmer?
1: No, he, he looks untrustworthy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a thief.
1: There's, there's certain so... bits. You know the bit when he's being Martin De Porres. And he has the long hair and get this oh, yeah. kind of Tommy Wiseau
0: vibe off him. Now, I do want to get into this, the whole issue of all the disguises, because Val Kilmer really wants to do lots of disguises. So they would kind of write them into the script as he came up with them and he would just develop these characters and improvise stuff on the take. So his mumbling about fish and chips as he's Martin de Porres, and going to sit at the table with the woman in the um, transport lounge while he's dressed as Bruno the German all of that was improv on the take because Val Kilmer is a really weird guy. There's a reason why he's not in big-budget movies anymore.
1: (laughs) I remember the publicity at the time said something interesting that turns out not to be true watching the movie, which is, well, actually, as you follow the character, his disguises get thinner and thinner as he becomes himself more and more. It's like, no, actually. Because his heaviest disguise is at the Cool Fusion...
0: Yeah, oh, when he's Discussion. dressed as, when he's dressed as Dick Emery.
1: Yeah, he never he never dresses up as a woman. Well, no.
0: See, then we go over I, into Jeff Cake's territory. I, I, so I don't I don't see that as a huge oversight in the, in the course of them. No, he does. He dresses up as a Russian cleaning woman.
1: Oh yes, yeah, but <sighs> we don't actually get to see him mince in yes.
0: well, <laughs> and do yeah. a whole Danny Larue thing. He want, he's wanders into the back of the shop. And according to Philip What I'm saying is
1: is that Val Kilmer should not have been in The Saint. He should have been doing a remake of Our Miss Fred.
0: (laughs) Who would you... Okay. If you were making a version of The Saint... Consistent with how you feel it should be done... In 97... Who would you cast?
1: Might be kind of a banal suggestion. I would have actually considered Tom Hanks. Because he looks trustworthy. Okay. He's He's got the innocent appearance... I'm not that attached. He doesn't have to be more English than drinking tea off a cricket bat, but just just dress him nicely. There, there is still, and I mean, part of the problem is by the 90s, the the high living world has shrunk. But I think it's they're still out there. Just make sure it's in the nicest
0: hotels. He's a, a gentleman charmer helping those in need.
1: Yes, and. Yeah. A music. little bit, and uh, I'd have him kill somebody,
0: because the original Saint was was a vengeful sob. And that's the keystone of the movie. Now we haven't actually got into the plot yet, <laughs> um, but that that is a keystone, is killing. And I know that that's a major element of the character, in other iterations. But he doesn't kill anyone in the movie, and that's important.
1: It's weird, isn't it? After, after all the fuss about different screen versions of Batman and Superman having to kill, because that's what you do in blockbusters—you can't have a hero who doesn't kill. It's very strange to,
0: to yeah. Oh, actually, that spoiling the end of the most recent Mission Impossible movie—they uh, lock up the bad guy, they 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 capture him and they lock him up. They don't kill him, so there's an there's an air of um, not greater morality, but a feeling of the sanctity of human life that superman the you know original space jesus appears to have forgotten what with his threats to rip people limb from limb have you seen batman versus superman
1: no i haven't i haven't bothered well don't if if i i didn't see see men of steel because the trailers didn't excite me and i thought if i'm not getting excited about the prospect of a superman movie then meh, why bother
0: well exactly i mean um no one wants to see a. Uh, the movie in which it's someone versus someone else and you don't know who is the lesser of two evils
1: one of my big complaints about superheroes these days is the only crimes they fight are crimes of which they are the intended victims they never get involved in somebody else's trouble they never see somebody else getting beaten up and say hey you big bully you can't do that it's it's always oh, somebody's trying to send a message to me through hurting somebody else i mean it's man of steel is the the whole thing would have been much better if if kal rocket hadn't landed on Earth. If it's just gone straight past and gone into the sun, the whole Mishigas would never have kicked off.
0: <laughs> now, The Saint starts, as the opening title tells us, it's uh, Yesterday in Hong Kong. and uh, Apparently this is something of a nod to Leslie Charteris's background in Hong Kong.
1: Leslie Charteris, whose, whose name doesn't appear in the credits?
0: No. It's a thing I keep um, <laughs> No, uh, and I can understand people being annoyed by that and that is a huge oversight. Because it's the saint, they have to credit Leslie Charteris even though they do take liberties with it, they change a lot it's still his character and they should have credited him. I don't think they even credit, they don't credit the TV series there's no reason why they would.
1: Actually, can I bring in one other really petty thing that's missing from this?
0: I can't stop you.
1: (laughs) That's missing. That is the Leslie Charteris, well, he claims to have written it. Some people say it was uh, written by a composer called Roy Webb. But that is The Saint's leitmotif that features, right from the movies, the radio version, turns up in Return of the Saint, isn't in the black and white Roger Moore's, but Leslie Charteris complained, and it does briefly turn up in the colour series. Uh, It's in the Simon Dutton tv series it's the scent
0: thing but they do, but the movie does use the edwin astley theme from the from the 60s tv which series.
1: which just kind of puts out its thought we're trading off a successful television series we're not actually that fussed about the character that's part of the message it seems to send out again there's this balance of the scent as a movie in its own right and the scent as an adaptation of a long-running character And those two things clash and it's like, I can't blame somebody for liking it as a movie, but I also can't blame somebody for saying, take this trash away from me. I was promised the saint.
0: (laughs) Well, in this Hong Kong orphanage, children are being lectured, but one of them is hidden within his Bible reading a book of stories about the Knights Templar. And he's found out and he gets the crap beaten out of him and he's told that he will not all the children in the orphanage will not be fed. All the slices of sliced lemon that have been locked away <laughs> uh, until he acknowledges his namesake, because he's been named after Saint John Rossi or Giovanni Rossi. In fact, he probably should be, but uh, Mister Rossi. Yeah, well, he he was a martyr, wasn't he? See that
1: that would have that would have been a good. Thing. <laughs> They could have made this a prequel to Mr. Rossi. <laughs> so at the end he finally sort of he maybe finally reconciles with his faith and the last words of the film are just call me Rossi.
0: <laughs> but he palms the priest's little crucifix. He has his own little uh, knife and he uses it to pick the lock of the cage and feed all the other kids. And they rush off and they're going to have an adventure and on the way one of the kids says oh yeah they should name you Simon Magus, like the magician we've been told about. says, No, no, Simon Templar. I thought, yeah, that's the clunkiest way you could have done that. Yes, <laughs> but the problem is, the, this version of Simon Templar doesn't really have his own name and his own identity. So you have to give him a name to call him, and you have to establish that as early as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's kind of forced by the shape of the script. They break, in, <laughs> they break into the girl's dormitory. Uh, normally a creepy thing to do. Simon wants to say goodbye to his young little girlfriend called Agnes. And they've got a, a sort of a sweet little relationship, I think. But they're found by the, the priests and the nuns and there are dogs. And then Agnes falls over a balcony to her a-
1: Agnes Agnes miraculously switches sides of a balcony.
0: Yeah, it's not a fantastically choreographed sequence, unfortunately. But um, she does. Yes, she she falls to her death, and Simon watches her and feel that he he's blaming himself for what happened. And we then jump forward to tomorrow in Moscow, and the face of sexiest man of cinema 1994 Val Kilmer would the film lose anything
1: if it just started with Val Kilmer in a Moscow hotel room
0: I think so because I feel that you need that set up to establish the character because the whole the key of the character is that childhood trauma Everything stems from that.
1: It's just my personal prejudice against cheap Freudian excuses for. Again, partially, it's maybe from reading too many comics where we now suffer from every every little kink and quirk about a character has to be explained. Oh, he wears a bow tie. Oh, maybe it was his father's bow tie. It's, you know side partings anything any any recognizable thing about a character now has to be explained in terms of childhood trauma
0: but in this case it makes sense because if you're trying to chart his progress from being a professional thief for hire to being the saint there has to be a reason why he's transitioning and in this case it's because him it's him recovering from that trauma and becoming a more open and accepting human being. I just think it it's not necessarily anything just to do
1: with this film. It's culture at large, just this little wash of psychological depth. Oh, it's not just an action film. He got bit by a dog when he was five there. Hmm. It's just me being grumpy about it. Yeah, I was going to
0: say, yeah.
1: I don't particularly like the 7% solution, you know. It's a clever trick.
0: But... What on earth are you talking about? It's a Sherlock Holmes. It's a Sherlock Holmes story, yeah, but I don't piece know what. The fiction, but it's
1: is. that whole thing of like, why does Sherlock Holmes solve crimes? Not because it's he's good at it and it's the right thing to do. It has to be. Well, because he meets Freud, it has to be a unifying trauma. It's that thing that anybody who does anything does it as a traumatic response to something in their past, not just because they find their niche. They do it in the TV series Monk. There's this bit where it's like, oh, the reason he solves murders is because his wife was murdered and it's the only crime he can't solve. It's like before his wife was murdered, he was a homicide detective. We've even had flashbacks that showed he was a detective when he was a boy who solved robberies at bake sales. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that thing of like, well, no, the only reason anybody would do anything heroic is because they've been hurt with this, with this oneness and so not, like, not even like a thousand little nasty
0: things that happen to them. There's always something to flash back to. But in the case of the saint, he starts becoming heroic because he's been healed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't don't mind me. It's just
0: it's my unifying
1: trauma. Uh, Sitting down to watch some cracking adventure, and it's like, oh, god, God. anal retention and all that kind of stuff. My childhood trauma. It's it's a cheap way of doing
0: character arcs. Yes, but it also it's context sensitive. It's it's
1: been done badly so many times that even when it's done well, I start to (laughs) shrivel up.
0: You could say the same thing about James Bond with him losing his parents when he was young. And that's made him a very close-off individual.
1: They, yeah, they, they did it. They went all through that in Skyfall. That's fine. And I, I have to say Spectre annoyed me so
0: deeply. Oh, you're in a very big boat there with lots of yes. other people. Spectre is not a very good movie. <laughs> Although, again... They let the villain if that live. turns
1: out to be the last Daniel Craig Bond film, it's like, oh God,
0: it's all so neatly packaged now. I've got a theory about that. I don't think it's the last Daniel Craig Bond film. I think that they're being cagey because Eon is trying to strike a new deal regarding the distribution of the Bond movies. And they want to keep Daniel Craig back as a bargaining chip.
1: Right, I don't think, he's, is his contract
0: over? Or? No, he's contracted for another one. He could buy his way out, and they might be able to break I'm just, to, I'm to just break hoping off. in
1: the next one, again, it's like he's investigating something because he's been told to, because it's his job, and it's the right thing to do to <laughs> know, stop the ne- bad
0: guys. Know, the next one will involve Blofeld again. I'll, I put money on that. Mm. But at the end of that, they should... Uh, that will be Craig's last, and then they should kill Blofeld off. And that would then tie it off completely. But it means that they can have the chance to fix everything they did wrong with Spectre. But for your eyes only style. <laughs> they should kill Blofeld <laughs> off before the credits. But having played by... Just um, have him
1: walk up behind him with a shovel and smack him on the back of the head so hard his eyes pop out and then...
0: Right. <laughs> Job done. Have a scene where Bond pats him on the head as well. So in Moscow Simon is... Uh, he has been hired by someone to break into... The headquarters of Tretiak Industries, and we're getting a lot. We get a lot of visual exposition very, very quickly. That Tretiak is a businessman. He's an aspiring politician. He is uh, very, very ambitious. He's a very big character, and his TV appearances are being very carefully stage managed as well. Because there's a shot where you get to see that the press conference that he's doing, or that the, the TV address, has all been carefully storyboarded. Meanwhile, in another part of the building, Simon's climbing up the side. He's got a special suit on that c- regulates body temperature so he can run around in lasers. And the other thing that comes up is the, the humor in the movie, which I find incredibly important at, at that level of humanizing, because he gets out his special multi-tool to open a window and finds, oh, it's already unlocked. Oh, I love this country. Uh, that's great. That's, that's a wonderful beat. <laughs> and that comes up over and over again. The fact that he, he could be dark and brooding and and weird, but he's not. He has this trauma, but he's, you know, he's still capable of looking to the light and he, as he will continue to move closer to the light during the course of the movie. But it, because he has that sense of humour and that sense of humanity about him, and that makes him much more endearing, appealing and relatable character than perhaps someone a bit more stiff and a bit duller wouldn't be. It's but
1: also it, got a really intelligent response to post Cold War villainy. I thought maybe one of the reasons you picked this is there was a sort of weird prescience about Oh uh
0: slightly K- Putinesque. Oh yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I mean it's been, it's been cutting-edge relevant for the last 15 years. But it's a former KGB officer, made a killing in oil and gas after the fall of the Soviet Union, and is now running for political office and it, on, on a fairly far-right totalitarian platform. The only difference is that he's incredibly hairy. <laughs> and brilliantly played, I think. Rad, uh, Rade Sabajia who's a Serbian actor, is absolutely terrific as Tretiak, because he never makes him a monster. He's a he's a villain, and he's a proper villain, with a V, but he's never a cartoon. His his
1: aims are fairly natural and understandable. In a way, he wants to rule the world, but
0: he's not a villain who wants to rule the world! No, he's he, in the same way that he's... Yeah, he, he's, he wants to rule the world in the same way that, you know, a lot of people already do, man. Yeah, yes, and
1: that's one hook you could use to get this film back into
0: people's lives. Oh yeah, absolutely. Then it's basically political prophecy, just like Escape from LA. You should watch that. It might have your house in it. Excuse me, I live in Orange County. (laughs) Yeah, it's like um, being told that Americans visiting uh, Wales and being told, "Yeah, we're in Wales in England." Even Paul Robson made that mistake. It's the last mistake he ever made. But uh, Simon gets to the top of the building. He breaks into the safe with his special high-tech equipment to steal a tiny little chip. But he's found by Tretiak's son, the the thuggish Ilya, who only noticed him because... I don't like his cocaine
1: watch. That seems an inelegant way of... I'm not an expert on taking the drugs, but...
0: I love that, that he he steps out of the press conference to take some cocaine, and he opens up his watch and it's inside, but it gets blown out because the window's open. Yes! (laughs) He must be new to it. Well, he's he's still practicing. I'm in
1: no position to lecture people on the right way of taking cocaine, but what I know from watching TV, I'm pretty sure he should have a better system worked out. But again, there's
0: a bit of humour there where, because Simon's wearing a balaclava, Ilya says the wrong place for a condom take it off and Simon for no reason other than vaguely in disguise decides to be Australian yes uh, you'll be you we can split the money you'll be discoing for a decade in Moscow mate but um, they they fight and Simon runs away and he gets up onto the roof and makes a jump for it and lands on a truck that's been conveniently placed there for his escape route as he, he looks up and smirks. An, an inflatable truck, that's... Well, I assumed it was full of cardboard boxes. Empty, presumably.
1: I, th- I thought it was... Because it, it just sort of, like, sagged in a way that it wasn't a rigid thing, so... He must have spent ages fixing that up. But it's, it's, it's an acceptable break from reality.
0: It's not so unrealistic as it looks yeah. strange. But as he looks up, there's just the faint hint of the tv theme the, the one that people recognize i think that's that's the key element yeah of it. we'll
1: stuff them stuff these mainstream <laughs> morons
0: that's my audience they're the enemy <laughs> don't don't listen to him listener i'll tell you where he lives but he adopts another disguise of a drunk to get away and then another disguise as a tourist <laughs> just to really hammer home the idea that he's addicted to dressing up as other people.
1: It's a, it's a great original character. It's a terrible saint, but it's it's a great original character this this guy he's playing.
0: Do you think then the film's better taken in terms of not not to do with the saint at all, but just a completely fresh Yeah, fresher... I, think, I think maybe it
1: just needs dubbing. Just dub in a few lines that remove any reference to Simon Templar. Okay, people might wonder why is Inspector Teal in this, but if he
0: has a life outside. Simon Templer, thank you very much. Literally no one is going to worry about that.
1: I'm sorry, I do research and now it's all stuck in my brain. I
0: mean, I, I know that uh, Claude Eustace Teal is a recurring character and was a recurring character in the TV series, but your regular Joe Public or John But yeah,
1: t- take out any reference to The Saint and you've got a new character here.
0: You've got a really great movie. But as he's taking the flight back, there's a bit of exposition that there's an oil shortage in Russia, that this is the cause of all the political unrest, and he's got another disguise on the plane as a Spaniard with long hair called Martin de Porres. And he seduces another passenger, played by a cameoing Emily Mortimer, where he manages to deduce that her husband's cheating on her. Do so you thought
1: Martin de Porres was creepy and, until we got to Thomas More? <laughs>
0: oh boy (laughs) while using this woman he manages to pass the microchip through customs he's being searched because they think that he might be this mysterious saint uh, character that they've been chasing stops off at a hotel in London he's in negotiations with his regular buyer and again it's a really actor thing in that he's eating an apple while he's uh, talking to his broker and the whole scene, he's talking through a mouthful of food. And it's both a very natural, realistic thing to do and also really unpleasant. <laughs> oh, that's that's oh, I've turned all the courage to the greedy capitalist. Crunch. <laughs> Just <laughs> stop eating, for God's sake.
1: There are worse foods he could have been. It's so noisy.
0: I mean, why isn't he having a curry? Now, one of the the big differences, I think, between the um, the original script and the, the movie is that there are a whole bunch of supporting characters of Simon's sort of fences and accomplices. And one of them is the concierge at his London hotel, who crops up several times all the way through the movie. And um, there's no such character in the finished movie, and the receptionist is shot dead. And I think that when the reception is killed, that's the only time in the movie that someone dies
1: I'm agreeing with you here I not have right. any, any observation to make
0: <laughs> I can't hear
1: you nodding <laughs> I just thought you'd take my silence as
0: eloquent he gets a message from Tretiak uh, Tretiak has, has figured out who he, uh, has gone onto the, gone onto the uh, international spy message board.
1: Now here's something. This here's something interesting. This movie's twenty years old, but its use of the internet prevents it being too dated. There's internet. There's mobile phones.
0: They're chunky, but well, that's that, that's not even a, a bit of um, sort of customized thing that they picked up. That was actually owned by a member of the crew that Philip Noyce spotted and thought, that's perfect, a phone that connects to the internet. So they incorporated it into the movie, and it's a real device. And I think that's that's helped it, because obviously that's now commonplace. But it looks, the idea that it folds open, and it's got a little thing that bends around, and it's that sort of early point where the internet was just becoming well-known. And it captures that in a in in amber, I think. So, but um, he agrees to meet Tretiak at Tempelhof Station, Tempelhof Airport, rather in uh, Berlin, and he goes as a different German character, Bruno Houtenfaust, who is incredibly camp.
1: Was Volker trying to get his own sketch? Or
0: he doesn't need one; he's got this film sequel seems like were.
1: he's trying to get himself a bit of Harry Enfield action.
0: <laughs> or come fly with me, because he's in an airport. <laughs> but I get a lot of his antics as Bruno were ad-libbed. You used to live in Germany, didn't you? That's correct, yes.
1: How's his accent?
0: Passable. Okay. It's not... He doesn't really speak in German. That's that's kind of the acid test, is you need to hear them speak in the language they're supposed to be speaking in. But he sounds more German than some Germans. And the fact that he's also playing up the comedy stereotype of the very camp German helps. Telling um, Ilya, oh, you have a very long and beautiful cane, Sonny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is actually something from the original scene that he had a tendency to call people angel face and beautiful in a mocking way. I listened to some of the mid-90s Radio 4 adaptations and I've forgotten the guy's name. I, th- I want to say Paul Rees. And there's this controlled anger to his scent. His scent has this mild Welsh accent. There's a slightly minor key quality in his voice and he just... The way he says... Beautiful and angel
0: face. is quite acid. <laughs> but the um, the job he's been offered by Tretiak is to steal a formula for cold fusion from a scientist called Emma Russell, who's working in Oxford. And uh, he, after consulting a lady on another table, which is- how linear
1: do we do this? Or can we just suddenly jump ahead? Um... So I, sometimes... Uh, okay, so just 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 keep... When we get towards the end, just say, you had a point to make about Cold Fusion. Oh, and okay. then I'll remember.
0: Okay. Okay. You've listened to this show before, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> just, because some people don't before they come on the show, and then they wonder why I'm doing it this way.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, um, I particularly enjoyed Santa Claus the movie.
0: So I was, I was actually... Re- I was referring to Ed Bloomer. Um... Who does not listen to this anyway? He's my arch nemesis. In fact, um, I suggested this movie and he said, oh no, that's terrible. Because I, I brought it along to a recent book group movie night and I sat everyone down and made them watch it. <laughs> and the, the, the silence after the movie was deafening. And I get the suspicion that Ed spoke for the group when he said that he hated it.
1: <laughs> right. No, I don't know if you do the linear fashion. It's f- for the benefit of your guests.
0: No, it's for the benefit so, say, of me. So if you want
1: to bounce around, that's fine. I'm used to uh, throwing out the idea as it occurs to me so that I don't lose it later on.
0: No, no, if you want to go off on a, on a tangent at some point, then that's fine, but I, I prefer to stick to but the it's probably the ben- Yeah, it's probably best mentioned in terms of the ending, so just I bid yes. you hold
1: that thought for me.
0: Okay. So so he agrees to take on the job of uh, stealing this formula, even though the Tretiaks are going to kill him anyway. And then we head off to Oxford. Now, it's at this point that we're introduced to another of his disguises. And in contrast to the original script, that's the version that I could imagine having People like Mel Gibson or Kevin Costner in, because the original script is so grim and humourless, and hard to enjoy. And it's not, and the, the settings have sort of randomly jumped around as well. Rather than being set in Oxford, it's in upstate New York, and there is a meet cute between Simon and Gillian St James in a supermarket where they start talking about fruit. And they, go, they sort of go their separate ways. They both drive back to their homes. But on the way, his Rolls-Royce breaks down. So she gives him a lift back to his house, which is a giant mansion. But it's not really his house because it turns out that he's rented it. And it's this really convoluted scheme. And then she gets kidnapped and taken back across the Atlantic. And she has to parachute out of the plane while she's still tied to a wheelchair. And it's all very serious. It takes itself desperately seriously. And I think the strength of the finished movie is that it doesn't. It has that sense of humour, and it's not even afraid of making jokes about the villains to their faces, to avoid it being too grim, even though the visual palette is quite muted. It doesn't want to have that that darkness that can be so overbearing I'm just imagining Kevin Costner's face throughout it's the same one that he always has, it never moves oh god I just thought Johnny Depp loves wigs doesn't he
1: so much easier than acting <laughs> that was very I, s- I am so sorry <laughs> I don't, I don't want to sour this whole podcast are well, you going to laugh at his divorce? No, no, that's celebrity gossip. I don't touch that stuff. Oh, just this terrible new film. Well, no, it's celebrities now. I mean, tittle-tattle about people who are famous in the 70s. That's, that's a lot of fun. Because it's all water under the bridge.
0: <laughs> well, not at television centre.
1: <laughs> so, um, the cold fusion is, is really just explained in terms of passion and romance, isn't it? Just
0: imagine. Oh, it would just be so wonderful. I think that's the strength of it because you, it's you're trying to communicate these scientific ideas, and I think well, this is a MacGuffin. <laughs> it's something that we've just made up. We don't know how it works. We have to communicate this in a way that the audience can latch onto. So it's just this thing. That I think she's it's because Julian Roy
1: took. Can you explain fusion, and then she goes on to not explain it? I think I think maybe it would be better if we come in sort of towards the end of the meeting. And she say, thus completely proving that cold fusion is a thing, and everybody nods, and then she can go off in her little speech about what you could do with a square mile of seawater.
0: No, it's a gallon of... You could run your car to the moon on a gallon of water or something.
1: Yeah, some, uh, sorry, square mile's not a... Not yeah. volume, is it? Yeah, but yeah, get, get a bunch of seawater and... Uh, but well, I'm getting the, ahead of myself, but we'd that's be de-
0: part of my point. But, we'd be, but we would be deprived of the first meeting between Simon and Emma Russell, where he's in his Dick Emery get-up with the teeth. I was thinking more he was in some sort of independent
1: movie art house as the sleazy father in some sort of <laughs> suburban America's
0: really grim movie. It's an it escaped from a Todd Solon's film. Yes. But it also sets up that Emma takes medication for her heart, which becomes relevant later on. And, um... Yeah, we get to meet Elizabeth Shue, and she's lovely.
1: <laughs>
0: she's not like other movie girls of the time, is she? In that she is educated, intelligent, confident, independent. Not really a damsel in distress. She's just... not. Yeah, she's not independent woman per Hollywood. She's like a real person. Yes. Or as close as you can get to a real person in a movie like this. That, that's, I think, the influence of, of the actors because the actors were given their heads so much of the time. And she was, and, you know, if you, if you cast an Oscar nominee like Elizabeth Shue, you need to give someone like that the space to develop a realistic character. Because the problem with independent, strong
1: females in action films is that they, they can just end up being bullies. They just come in scenes looking for somebody to be nasty to,
0: and that winds up being their only characteristic. Yeah, whereas Emma is a much more rounded individual, I think.
1: And obviously, as a middle-aged white man, I know a thing or two about feminism.
0: Yeah, um, sorry. Yeah in a, in our recent police in our recent police academy podcast, Ed and I, being two straight white guys, just des- decide how we're going to solve racism and homophobia. So, so. Simon is somewhat intrigued by her so he breaks into her house and has a look around immediately finds where she's keeping all her notes but um, realises that they're incomplete and that maybe the secret to the cold fusion formula is actually in her head and that's why the Tretiacs had difficulty trying to get hold of it so he decides that she needs the right kind of person, you know, piecing together bits from her apartment, from the fact that she keeps fish. She has all these this art everywhere, all this poetry, and a picture of her father in a lab. And he works out that she needs to meet one of his other personas, Thomas More, the South African creep.
1: Oh, these, I think this is one of the things that might turn people off this movie. A few minutes in the company of Thomas More can have quite a negative effect on the eyes, ears,
0: soul. We're really at Pete Kilmer at this point, I think. But
1: Uh, how insufferable... Right, if Johnny Depp had got this, how much more insufferable would Thomas More have been, assuming that he'd gone down the same disguise-filled route?
0: thing is, he looks like Thomas More now. Yeah. Yeah
1: that's the thing he's it's mean that- to waiters that's always a bad sign the waiters
0: mean to him the waiters mean to him first well they he again Simon sort of knows where Emma's going to be because of, he's basically been through all her stuff and felt her bed you know in the way that burglars do and that Shelley monument looked nothing like Hal Bennett <laughs> oh you've never seen him without his clothes on <laughs> you should watch Neverwhere <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Um, but he goes that she kn- he knows that she regularly goes to the Shelley monument at the university so he hangs around there sketching languidly laying on a bench with his leather trousers and long hair and uh, interesting accent and he tries to chatter up a bit but he finds it very awkward because I'm, I'm not used to being around people as he says, sort of. And she, she feels the same way. But he leaves his book full of uh, art stuff behind and reads through it and it's full of poetry and drawings and all this kind of arty, mid-90s Laura Ashley gubbins. Which Val Kilmer designed himself. And he wrote all the poetry in there himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I wish I'd paid more attention, but I don't know.
0: I find that I seem to lot... I'm a lot. mean,
1: petty little man with no poetry
0: in his soul. Oh, don't be silly, i not that little.
1: I like test cards.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like the noise they make. When is that clown ever going to win?
1: Uh, there was a version. There was a version where he won. I think they did it one Christmas. These were adept especially for Christmas. There's there's ones where the the clown and Carol have have not have gone. Let's just move on from Thomas More. <laughs> oh no, but this is probably so integral to the plot because it's the point where he realizes that he's it, it, there's that bit where he goes, "What are you doing to himself?" They hang the really big emotional moment at at that point
0: <laughs> where he stabs himself in the face. Yes. Well, I, one thing that I do want to mention is that that whole prepared book, and it's clearly something that Templar has done in the past and is, has poured effort into. It's an outlet for his own personality, his own real personality, that he isn't able to express in any other form. So you could argue that's not Thomas More, that's Simon Templar, who's written that, because he has no other means of expressing... Emotion to the world, not through people, not through his true self. That's it.
1: I wish that she'd been into creepy guys with big overbites and bad comb overs. <laughs> He's okay, I like that disguising. <laughs> they can was,
0: cope with him. Apparently, there's another scene with that character because you see him very briefly in, a, in the trailer in a right. short slot the movie, and I, it sounds like he introduces himself and that his name is Tony Stubbs. And that's a perfect name for that character. I don't care if that's not a real saint. Is is there a Saint Tardy Stubbs? I have no idea. I don't think so.
1: Is that maybe why he got... That bit gets cut out. They realise that they've been so careful with their saints in every other disguise.
0: I'm sure they could have thought of something. Uh, Hello, my name's uh, Columba. (laughs) But um, Simon, as Thomas, has followed Emma to a nearby pub where she's going through the book. And he goes up to her table and orders some wine for them. And the waiter says, oh, that, uh, that wine is 500 pounds a bottle, or 200 pounds a bottle. And he reaches into his waistband, pulls out a huge wad of notes, and says, well, in that, ca- in that case, we'll have two bottles. So he's, he's only getting his own back on the waiter. Well, the you know, I, I imagine maybe the, the the waiter's had
1: to deal with this kind of thing before. It's like, oh, God, he's going to ex- order the most expensive thing. And then when he gets the bill, he's going to kick off. We get we get one of these a day at least. So this this time, you know, I'm just this time I'm just gonna tell the guy how much it costs. It's gonna avoid a whole lot of heartache.
0: And he pays for it in advance, as well, because he does hand in the cash. He has
1: to deal with banknotes that
0: smell of Val Kilmer's crotch. <laughs> they all do. But they have um, Simon and Tom, uh, uh, Thomas and Emma have a, t- a talk about that at, the, at the table about themselves. And, a, and she tells him about her formula. And it turns out that the formula, she actually keeps on a series of cards that she keeps folded up in her bra. And we, we jump forward and they're, they're talking and, and what? What are you giggling at now?
1: I don't know. I just suddenly thought of maybe we needed a close-up of his eyes bugging out and a bit of a carry-on as he looked at her cleavage.
0: Well, he does lean in for a better view.
1: I'm just looking again, to the right? Find Grant, Gibson, Schwarzenegger. I can't see Robin Asquith as being <laughs> on the list at any point here. A missed opportunity, I fancy.
0: But the um, the scene after we jump forward where they've both had quite a bit to drink and they're talking about um, art and truth and all that, and her science work, that was reverse scripted. Elizabeth Shue and Val Kilmer improvised half an hour of that scene in character, and that was filmed and whittled down to that three-minute scene because that was the process that Philip Noyce wanted to use. He wanted to get that spontaneity and that naturalness of avoiding having scripted dialogue. So instead, it's it's just
1: That explains natural. a lot of why this keeps taking turns that other action movies of this type don't. Now I come to think of it, now I come to examine it plot by, by plot point. It's it's not quite as harm-drum as I thought it was.
0: No, it's not. That's my whole point. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> it's it's more interested in the characters than in the action. The the, the thing that's more that the, the director's most interested in the story is how does a character go from being a thief to being the Robin Hood of crime? All the action's incidental. That's just the stuff you need to, to help tell the story and to keep the audience entertained by having things to look at. I mean, if he could do it as, as just a character drama with no action, I think he probably would have. It might even have made it a better film. As Thomas can't sort of deal with this anymore, and he, he sort of flounces off, walks out into the street with the rest of the bottle of wine, and then slumps down in the doorway, smashes the bottle, gets out his little mirror and his knife, looks in the mirror and he says, what are you doing? And then stabs himself in the face. Because he realises he's really starting to get emotionally involved with Emma in a way that feels very strange and uncomfortable for him. And now he's going to talk his way into her bed and he's not that cool with it even though he knows he has to. So when Emma comes out looking for him, he says, oh, I I was thinking about you and I fell and oh. And he's he's really playing up the absurdity of the character but in the context of of her taking him seriously i don't think it really does her many favors that
1: no it's it just looks like he just got drunk and
0: well they have been drinking quite heavily i mean they've had yeah but
1: it's never really good for capturing a girl's heart i I thought he was going to say some guy said about me and Made fun of my leather pants, and they push me over. <laughs> oh Rather my- than I'm so drunk I can't
0: stand. Can I come <laughs> back to your place, eh? Because oh, he needs to have his wound looked at. Is she sort of she's tending to him, and she's about to put a bit of uh, disinfectant on it, and he goes, ah! and makes a jump, and then that gives her a heart attack, which I thought was again, it's a reminder that she's got a heart problem. But it it emphasizes the closeness between them. I think they have great chemistry, Kilmer and Shu. I think they really The whole thing's
1: curious. I mean, it it ups the peril later on. But it's an interesting little bit of business.
0: And um, apropos of nothing, she suddenly says, uh, Take off your pants. And that's the biggest laugh in the movie because the audience and Simon go, What? I mean, you'll you'll sweat if there's blood on it. I'll wash it. (laughs) That's funny! Ah, you're no fun anymore.
1: No, I'm not. (laughs) I never promised to be fun. I I don't recall ever promising that I was going (laughs) to get the party started.
0: (laughs) But as she um, goes off to um, uh, prepare herself, Simon is clearly having a massive crisis of conscience. <laughs> and he goes to the extent of messaging Tretiak to say, I can't do this. I can't, I, I, I can't steal from her. This, is, this isn't going to work. Uh, but they sleep together anyway. And Tretiak sends back a message. Well, tell you what, I'll double your fee, or I'll send the boys around to deal with her so did, did we mention the 50 million thing oh no we didn't um no yes yeah, simon's aim appear, uh, his his ambition appears to be solely to have 50 million dollars in his swiss bank account and this is probably going to be his last job
1: you see i think i like that more than the trauma of having his childhood girlfriend killed by catholics record I just want a lot of money a set amount because I'm not greedy it does feel like something from a different draft of the script that's just not been removed it doesn't it doesn't disturb anything it's, it's not like it creates any kind of plot or characterization
0: hole but it's interesting they keep flagging this up it, it does emphasize that although he's in it for the money it's not just unlimited greed unlike Tretiak it's that, you know, he'll get to a certain amount and then say, Right now I can live comfortably wherever I want for the rest of my life. Bang, done.
1: How but, about we combine the two? Instead of the girl falling to her death, she felt she fell safely because somebody had stacked fifty million dollars underneath
0: the railing. <laughs> In a and it Catholic then became homage. an E day
1: fix event. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um even so, the following morning, Emma wakes up, Thomas Moore has gone, and he's taken her cards and left behind little cards that say, I'm sorry. He, he, takes, he takes a photo of the cards with the world's largest digital camera and sends it off to Tretiak, who uses the conversation online to track him down so that his son and, and his pals can get rid of him and close off that little thread. But Simon realises and makes his getaway in a firefight and car chase that is over almost immediately. It's 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 weird. It's a kind of it's sort of a bit interruptus. It feels like it's about to lead into some to a bigger action scene, but it doesn't. It just kind of resolves itself very quickly.
1: It kind of feels like it's there for you know, right out of obligation. Yeah, yeah. You promises a bit more action after that boring stuff that we let you shoot. Okay, there it is, there. Job done, come on.
0: And as I said, the, the, apparently the one fatality in the entire movie is the desk clerk in the hotel. Emma is at New Scotland Yard and has realised that Thomas Moore is a fraud and is talking to Inspector Teal and she figures out that all the various aliases this character has used are all Catholic saints. As if Maybe the police hadn't realised that before. Yes, yeah, uh,
1: I, I'd let that slide. It's for the benefit of the audience, and the stupid policeman is a standard thing in this kind of fiction. It, it's not something that them not knowing has put lives at risk.
0: It it probably wouldn't have happened in real life, but I, it's not a hole. It's a liberty. It's a, yeah. it's, a dra- it's a dramatic liberty cut to david schneider (laughs) as possibly the world's least funny comedian in a crappy little nightclub in moscow his entire act consists of
1: doing his brant as john major Ah!
0: (laughs) voice no no, he burps into a wine glass instead yes (laughs) tretiak is living it up with uh, his army pals but the club is infiltrated by Simon, disguised as Tretiak. Now,
1: that, yeah, that that's gutsy.
0: <laughs> that I like because it's a very. That's good another
1: standout club. moment. Other other movies would not have the hero be have quite so much
0: chutzpah. It's it's something. Would you say that uh, makes this movie special?
1: Well, I, I I did regret that they didn't end up doing the whole mirror routine. <laughs> Like duck
0: soup. But you would point to that as a reason that this film is unique.
1: Yes. Yeah, it, it has has a Miracle. little interesting flavor running through it.
0: Miracle one. So he pulls a knife on Tretiak and gets him to transfer the money. And then, again, there's a bit of humor in that. He hands him his phone to get the money transferred, and he's holding the phone the wrong way around. And as he, as he's go, as he's leaving to rile him up, says, "You know what the worst part is of pretending to be you, pretending to be so bad in bed." And as and then he as he leaves the little corner of the microphone, he says, "Oh, there's an impostor in there.
1: Get here, get here. Again, yeah, just continuing the ballsiness.
0: <laughs> That's he's a very he's a very sort of cheeky character. You don't really get that in anything else. You don't, you don't see that in something like Batman or James Bond. He's he likes taking the Mickey out of his opponents to their face in a cheeky way, rather than in a snarky way that that Bond might, or just by murdering them the way Batman does. <laughs> and shouldn't and well, he does murder some people in the books. I think. I mean, I, I have a big problem with Superman murdering people, but Batman, I think, under the right circumstances, yeah.
1: Well, Batman's killing days are over within about 18 months of his debut. In the comics?
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, he's done um, on the films. One of
1: the... A, a story that was meant to be in Detective Comics issue 38 and wasn't because they decided to bring Robin right into it, and it gets published a bit later. We, we have him kill somebody, but he says, much as I hate to take a human life, it's necessary. So even within a year of him appearing, he's gone from somebody who just likes breaking people's necks and <laughs> a sheer cussedness to somebody who values human life even as he takes it, to then later on, there is a, there is a... I don't know what year it is, but it's quite early on where he picks up a gun and shoots a guy in the arm and says, I just wanted to wing him. And there's a little note saying, the Batman does not carry a gun and does not kill.
0: I think by that point they were maybe concerned about setting a good example for the kids...
1: Oh, yes. I mean, I think Robin was brought in just to make the character more appealing across the board.
0: So Simon, having checked that the money has been deposited in his bank account, and he's now quitting the crime business, gets back to his hotel to check out and finds Emma waiting for him. She's wants wants to get her cards back, but Simon doesn't have them. And he thinks that uh, maybe she's come to get him because they're in love, because she's in love with him. So she slaps him across the face and he says, well, that proves my point, doesn't it? That seems
1: more standard kind of Hollywood action movie flirting. It it strikes a slightly
0: wrong note. Slap, slap, kiss. I've seen it referred to as. But um, she uh, points points him out to the police so that they can arrest this notorious figure. But of course, because the whole city is in Tretiak's pocket, they're both arrested and thrown in the back of a van. And, of course, because of all the excitement, she needs some of her heart pills.
1: Yeah, and the bit about eat them out of my hand was...
0: Yeah, because he's he's palmed the bottle somehow. He manages to get two into his hand behind his back, and she manages to sort of kneel down and reach around and um, eat them out of his hand. And he says, well, as he looks out at her kneeling in front of him, while you're down there, <laughs> <laughs> get the get the knife out of my boot again it's that 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 sense of humour that really just it takes the edge off any kind of darkness or harshness and it makes it feel much more engaging that's why that's why I love it It just it feels so much r- more real so when the van arrives at um, Tretiak headquarters all that's inside is a couple of empty pairs of handcuffs as Simon and Emma run along through a, a tunnel and by the river.
1: This starts to feel a bit like padding, though. Losing the heart pills, going after the heart pills, getting hypothermia.
0: Well, the original script is very weirdly structured so that there's a very long chase around... For some reason, they've moved the setting to St. Petersburg. And they're, they're running around St. Petersburg... And then they take a train to Moscow, and then they're running around Moscow, and that feels even more like padding.
1: <laughs> yeah, the one thing it does do is show how horribly grimy life is at the bottom.
0: Yes, they. The, well, they, there is. They go to the station where Simon has a safety um, a, a locker with various things in, and he says he thinks that their plan is, oh well, you know, we'll finish off the formula, which will apparently only take two hours. Then uh, we'll send it all over the world and you'll become rich. And then, well, we'll see what happens to us then. But she doesn't like the idea of this, makes a run for it, and nearly gets caught. And, he get, and Simon gets to deliver the almost Terminator line of, if you want to live, never leave my side. Which is what a very romantic Terminator would say. It's like if it was a David Lean film. Wouldn't be a bad tagline for a poster, really. If you want to live, never leave my side. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the actual tagline, I think, is terrific. Never reveal your name. Never turn your back. Never surrender your heart. That kind of sums the movie up very neatly, I think. Yes. That action combined with the the romantic
1: aspect. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember the publicity really pushing that
0: the trailer is I think, dreadful. I think
1: there's an audience for this that hasn't seen it. I know there because is. Because it wasn't sold to them.
0: Miracle 2. As they head along the waterfront um, hiding from Ilya and his thugs um, they accidentally drop the heart pills in the river. <laughs> I didn't like that bit. It is it is a little bit forced but it in terms of the plot mechanics it works because Simon goes in and rescues them he then has hypothermia they're given shelter in a nearby apartment building by a young prostitute. And because he has hypothermia, she needs to get his body temperature back up, so they <laughs> they take off all their clothes and lie on top of each other. But it it gives that, that physical closeness, develops the relationship. Simon gets to talk about his own past and, and tell her his real oh, name. There is another fatality. There is another fatality, yes, because uh, Ilya and the others searched for the Americans, offering money, and someone says, oh, I've, I've seen one American, one polo bear, <laughs> and then gets shot. Because it's a great idea to annoy a rough Russian mafioso who's pointing a gun in your <laughs> face. I think he maybe overestimated his comic abilities.
1: And, uh, you know, this is a people who like a man burping in a glass.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's got his own show now. <laughs> they managed to get out of the building by getting to the top and then sliding down the lift shaft right into the sewers and they figure out that they can escape to the embassy from there so that Emma can get out of the country safely. And which is where we're introduced to the only one of Simon's allies from the earlier script who survives into the finished movie. Right. Frankie the Russian art fence.
1: There is a faint sense that it's like
0: your story keeps keeps on going
1: after you're off screen
0: i think that's good writing to yeah to 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 suggest that there is a world that's going on when we're not looking so that yeah there's there's stolen or uh, mysteriously disappeared or borrowed art being bought and sold in this little underground hiding place so um Simon bribes Frankie to take them to the exit to the embassy. Unfortunately, they have to climb through a water main, and there's a gas line, and there's all kinds of excitement, and they will get wet. And just as they're about to get through the manhole that's outside the embassy 100 yards from the gate, Ilya pulls up, and his car stops right right over the top of it. So then they come up with a scheme. Simon will cause a distraction. Emma will make a run for it. And Simon cuts both the gas line and the fuel line of the car. (laughs) As Emma makes a run for it, Ilya goes after her. Simon is running in the opposite direction. And Emma manages to make it in the nick of time, losing her coat in the the process. And then Ilya, because he's really mean, spits in the face of a Marine. Terrible man. But his goons...
1: and of course there's protests outside the embassy so you can kind of see why the marine didn't just shoot earlier there
0: I don't think they're supposed to shoot people generally even in Russia
1: yeah, be you tempted wouldn't you, if, you... <laughs> if I had a gun and anybody spat in my face it it would take a heck of a lot of resistance on my own part not to just shoot the person even if it was probably a bad idea I think
0: you should come back to Britain <laughs> it's okay I don't have a gun well, good. <laughs> what, now or just generally? Just generally,
1: actually. I have held a Luger while I was here, but that's it was empty.
0: You've never fired a gun? No. Oh, I, I'll fair. get around to it eventually, but... I can imagine it's worth trying.
1: Well, my my dad was a good marksman when he did national service, so I'm curious to, to find out how much of it's genetic. So if I can find somewhere that has, like, a maybe a... A Lee Enfield rifle or whatever they issued during <laughs> national service. I'll give it a whirl, but uh, no, I'm not heavily into ballistics.
0: But uh, Ilya's goons wrestle Simon to the ground, and they say, oh, "All right, we've got you now." He says, "Oh, wait, before you do, before you do anything, I know where I know where your father's keeping all the money." Oh no! He, <laughs> as Ilya approaches, he says, "Oh, she outran you. How humiliating!" Again, even though he's in like the worst situation possible. He's still just going to laugh in the villain's face. Ha ha, you're rubbish. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't even outrun a woman. But said, yeah, I know I know where the money is. He's all right, like, well, where, where is it then? As he's with his other hand slowly pulling the tiny um, torch cutter from his multi-tool and throwing it in the distance. So I know, but I'm not going to tell you as the car explodes and Ilya's face gets all mangled. And Simon runs off as Emma watches.
1: Now, this is where we get our diversion, isn't it? Between. The, was it the original shooting, didn't they? Actually, get as far as shooting two endings?
0: No, they shot a completed version and then they went back and fairly extensively reshot the last third or so of the movie. The original version of the script is pretty much the same as the original shot ending, which is that Emma's Emma gets to the uh, embassy, and then she goes back to America, and then she does her speech. So it's zipped to the end of the movie very quickly. But at that point, she suddenly drops dead, and it looks as though she's had a heart attack, but Simon, who is in the audience, notices that Ilya is there, and she's actually been poisoned. He goes back to Russia. Um, the Tretiaks are having the big rally. They're going to seize power. Um, that sequence plays out virtually as it does in the finished version of the movie. But the Tretiaks shoot their way out and head back to the mansion. There's a huge fight. Ilya shoots his father. Um, the whole place is burning down. And um, Ilya winds up falling to his death in the in the flames in the big... In the, in the big pile of uh, uh, oil at the bottom of the building. Virtually none of that is in the finished movie, (laughs) even though it was all shot and done. But some of it's in the trailer, isn't it? Yes, that was... I read about
1: that and I forgot to look at the trailer. Very slack, I'm sorry.
0: That's quite all right. The trailer is edited in a very, very fast-paced way and it's not very easy on the eye. I, I, I feel that we shouldn't make a judgment on it until we get to the... Sort of later on, but it does feel like the original ending is a really poor choice because the second lead dies two thirds of the way through the movie.
1: Yes, and, and
0: then the tone shifts very abruptly to being a lot more grim, dark.
1: Again, does that feel like maybe an even earlier draft has survived to this stage? How do you mean? How, how many hands did this pass through? How many people?
0: have their names on this script just two Jonathan Hensley who wrote the original script and then Wesley Strick who wrote the 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 version that we're familiar with which was fine-tuned after Valkyrie came on
1: there's sometimes massive shifts in tone it could kind of be the result of we're now on draft 12 and for some reason this has been in all of them and we never got round to
0: well the thing is that because the whole the whole of the Hensley version is so serious and po-faced that it it kind of feels natural because there's no the, the the romantic element is so poorly handled and so poorly written that when Gillian St. James is killed off you don't really feel anything and Simon doesn't really express any kind of emotions so it, it it just feels inconsequential Whereas here, where there's there's so much lightness and humour in, in, in the movie to that point, for them to be such a huge shift, it doesn't work now. Because they've changed the tone of the movie to fit the actor, and now the plot doesn't work. So they have to rewrite the plot as well.
1: One thing I read was that both endings tested equally well with test
0: audiences. Apparently they did. That's what... Um, Philip Noyce says on the commentary um, but they wound up choosing the, the the finished, more upbeat ending because it was truer to the original Saint stories. I Now, would, would
1: you say that's fair? Yes, I'd say it's just fair because the death doesn't really feel earned It it's not it's not a really wonderful pulling the rug from out underneath you. It's not something that's well prefigured throughout. It w- it would just kind of feel like oh, oh that's that's a lot that you're trying to get us to feel something without. I think the ending as as it goes on just just works generally regardless of whether they're being true to Charteris or not. Miracle three. I don't think you're going to get canonized for persuading <laughs> you that The Saint is quite a good film. <laughs> I know Francis is a little bit looser compared to some of his predecessors.
0: And it's the film. The film is The Saint. That's the thing that I want to be canonized. The, film is the, one ach- the film's the one achieving the miracles. And, of course, it's dead. <laughs> It's been interred for the last 18 years. <laughs> no, that's one word, by the way. What? Uh, interred. One word, not two.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry. It's way ahead of me. Um, I, I watched watch this film
0: twice, but I still keep losing where I am in the story. Well, uh, Tretiak's Pet Scientist... Dr. Lev Botvin has been examining the Henry formula. Henry Goodman
1: with his he- distracting resemblance to Lonnie Donegan, at least in my eyes.
0: <laughs> but yes, it's sort of another sort of weird celebrity cameo. He's been going through the formula, and as far as he can tell, it doesn't work because Emma hasn't finished it yet. And Tretiak is at first furious by this, but then realizes this is perfect. We can present it to President Karpov and use it to discredit him. And uh, oh, by the way, make sure that Emma's killed. And as he's scheming away at this, a little old char lady comes <laughs> into his office, <laughs> played by a florid-faced Simon Templar, and plants a little listening device, which is, I think, the film's
1: biggest. Is, is it the Green Death where John Pertwee dresses as a char lady? Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> Just making a note of that. But Simon goes to visit Emma. He again manages to inveigle his ways into the most secure of environments. He gets into the Tretiaks' headquarters. He gets into the American Embassy again in order to see Emma and tells her that he needs to get her to finish the formula so that he can make a deal with the Russians. And he explains that, of course, as she she says, you know, calls him a saint. Well, you know, a saint has to. Be dead, and also has to perform three miracles. As,
1: and my name's August, named after Saint Augustine, because I've actually run out of Catholic saints with first names and
0: surnames. <laughs> well, he's also uh, well, Saint Christopher because he's a traveller.
1: Comes him himself Saint Michael,
0: and they could have had a scene
1: in the Marks and Spencers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he—I mean—he does have one of the one of one of my favourite lines in the movie, which is you know, that named after St. August because he came up with his favourite phrase, give me chastity and give me constancy, but don't give it yet.
1: Yes. We, we could spend all day talking about the theological implications of Augustinian approaches to sex by somebody who's already had enough. Thanks. Well, now, now I've had enough sex. I actually decided that it's something
0: we should all be ashamed of, Great. It's <laughs> like Fry Tuck being fat. At, um, as Simon is waiting for the uh, final keystone of the formula to be faxed through, he gets a message from Michael Cochran, another uh, big-name cameo, saying, oh, I think oh, you're in the market for coal fusion. Well, I'll, I'll double any uh, offer that... Oh, uh, yes,
1: Michael Cochrane, who's in Number One Gun, which is an absolutely... I was going to say unspeakable. No, I'm, I'm going to be nice about it. It's a very interesting third instalment in the Charles Bind trilogy, which uh, we dealt with on Jaffa cakes of We dealt with the first one. I've forgotten the name. There's "License to Love and Kill." No, I think it's I think it's called Number One of the Secret Service with Nikki Henson. Then there's "License to Love and Kill" with Gareth Hunt.
0: Make sure you get it the right way around. And then
1: ten years later they made the third film with an actor whose name I've forgotten. And uh, Gary and I are desperate to get hold of a really high quality copy so we can finally satisfy ourselves whether it's shot on film or videotape. Because it's hard to tell. We've got like a 17th generation copy of it. Why would it have been shot on videotape? Look if you see the film you think yeah this looks like the kind of thing they might have it, it's definitely straight to video good grief it, in fact we, we've, we speculated it might actually have been straight to torrent <laughs> and Michael Cro- Cochran is uh, the bad guy in it or one of the bad guys
0: I do remember one of my favourite jokes And never mind the buzzcocks which was that most of David Bowie's film co- career didn't go to video it went straight to taped over <laughs> or how most of Nicholas Cage's films these days go direct to Tesco. <laughs> we get a bit of a montage at this point where Russia is facing a new revolution, the energy crisis is becoming chaotic, and so Simon effectively could be holding the fate of the world in his hands and it just it it raises the stakes beyond the immediate environment of the characters. We know that you know what the stakes are for Simon and Emma, but this is for the whole world this is now crucial. And it, it just it just helps to sort of raise everything as we we're moving into the final act of the movie. So Simon breaks into the Kremlin. Again, he's a yeah, let's break into the Kremlin. I think he's earned
1: that. I, I, think, I think we can trust that he'd be able to do
0: that. And he knocks out a guard, but the other one pulls a gun on him. And he's put a gun on them, and he hesitates. And that that's the keystone of the movie. That's the thing that, I keep using the word "keystone." That's the bedrock of the movie, and the thing that I think we we're going to talk about earlier, which was he doesn't kill people. He makes them. He makes that moral choice, and that's a that's such an important stepping stone in his character arc that he makes that conscious choice. Not to kill someone, even though it's the easy thing to do, and it's like you said, it keeps ma- the film keeps making the, the the different choice that an action movie would normally make, not necessarily going for the di- more difficult or the harder option, but something that is different and fresher and arguably more realistic and easier for the audience to directly relate to. Yes, that's what I would do if I was in that situation. It makes that empathy so much easier, and that's and it makes it much more likable and engaging for me
1: it's something that came up we did a sitcom club about the esmond and lobby sitcom "Hope it rains and we speculated it was alan Corran who'd said about the secret to being funny is don't say the first thing that comes into your head because that's just stupid don't say the second thing that comes into your head because all the clever people will have thought of that say the third thing and we were speculating that hope it rains was Esmond and Larby trying the fifth and sixth things (laughs) that occurred to them because it just kept taking very
0: strange turns so would you say the same thing about the saint That that it keeps making these odd decisions to go to break away from the acceptable recipe for these kinds of movies
1: I think that's partially because of the the way it's made. Like you said, if they're allowed half an hour of improvisation time, and then rethinking ideas in light of that, yes, it's plot is coming out. Plot is being bent towards
0: the characters, so it's just made in a a looser style. So, uh, Simon manages to get into the bedroom of the president of Russia and says right I need to say they're going to drag her out into the red square and they're going to accuse you of all kinds of things and you have to agree with everything they say no matter what they say just agree with everything and suddenly the army bursts in they drag the president away and say, so who are you and he opens his mouth to give a smart aleck reply and then Ilya comes in <laughs> <laughs> oh right okay <laughs> outside Tretiak is addressing Red Square. He's standing on a tank. He's got the army there. He says, "Ah, tonight we're going to rewrite history. We're going to. It's the new Russia. Uh, you know, big beards for everyone. Uh, I look like Lenin, don't I? Yeah. It's, it's a it's a show trial for President Karpov. and I saw the president." Throwing away money on this ridiculous thing that never works and employing this international scoundrel. Oh, Mr. President, do you deny that you've poured money into this? No, I, I don't deny it. It's all true. As, and and it's it's almost as if it's set up for a false. Oh, I'm going to show you that this thing doesn't work. Look, I'm going to press this button, then it's supposed to light up, and it doesn't work. See? Ha ha ha. What if Karpoff had said no? What if Karpov... What if Copperford said, no, this isn't true. What are you talking about? So, well, I've built this thing. I've no idea what that is. What are you talking about? But I think because it's like a popular revolution, by this point, Tretiak's crowds are just eating out of his hand. They'll believe everything he says. It would have been interesting to see, to, for, yeah,
1: Copper says, yes, definitely, put loads of money in. and I've, To see Tretiak just stop for a moment mid-flow. Yeah. Maybe, like, put his hand over the mic and go, yeah, you, you do
0: to realise what i said we're gonna we're gonna hang you are you sure (laughs) so yeah he's got the crowd eating out of his hand like the short-fingered vulgarian that he is and he turns it on and so I can't even light uh, one one little bulb I've missed out a part of the movie haven't I where Simon gives (laughs) the rest of the formula to Lev Botvin haven't I well he does so yeah he does that by sneaking in somewhere else and um, so it, we know it's going to work. And it, I can't even light up one little light bulb. And the bulb just comes on very, very slightly and then it gets brighter and brighter and brighter until the whole thing's overheating and it's blazing with a huge blaze of light. And the army turns against Tretiak and he, Ilya and Tretiak Sr. are arrested and taken away. And it's all a little bit abrupt, but that is what happens when you reshoot things in a hurry. Now, you had some things to say about Cold Fusion.
1: So I was saying that one of the problems for this being a long origin story is we don't have the Saint 2, 3 and 4 to take our character. The only thing is, is the Saint 2 would would take place in a post-scarcity world. (laughs) Cold Fusion is real. You can now power everything off a certain volume of seawater. You'd have to, I don't know, what would you, you'd just have to hope everybody forgot by the second movie, because otherwise there'd just, just be an unrecognisable science fictional thing where everybody's driving very strange looking cars and everybody has enough power for everything.
0: Well, I, th- I think the inference is that by the end of the movie they know Cole fusion works and they know how to make it work, but they don't know how to make it work on a practical scale. And that's why that why the, why this new institute is set up that is going to work on it. So we can still have cars running on petrol, um, that kind of thing, in any subsequent movies. We're saying, oh yeah, they're still working on it and they've got a prototype for a new uh, water-powered car. And they don't have to worry about that too much. So it kind of gives them an out, I think. But as all this is going on in Red Square, as it's the, it's the, the light blazes away, and the crowd reacts with awed and wonder, Simon says, ah, miracle one. As the Tretiaks are taken away by the police and, and clapped in irons, and the, all the heating oil that's gone missing is found hoarded in a big swimming pool underneath their mansion. Miracle two. And we cut back to London, and Emma's being debriefed at New Scotland Yard. And she's very, oh, I, oh this, all this nonsense, I mean... All I got out of it was near-death experiences and and being dragged around Moscow. It was absolutely terrible. And so she goes off, and Teal turns to his colleague and says, she's in love with him. For such a terrible detective, he is a very, very good judge of character.
1: Well, he has his strengths, clearly. There are clearly certain cases that he cracks because of his great emotional insight. Rather than being able to recognise and photograph. Or have any knowledge of the Catholic canon of saints?
0: Well, he might not. I don't. But then I'm quite ignorant. Now,
1: see, I had a Catholic upbringing, so Martin de Porres and Thomas oh, More. Well, because helps. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of that stained glass window and what Thomas More looks like, and thinking, I wish he had the hat.
0: I was <laughs> be Thomas More. <laughs> The hat and the robe, the whole thing. Yeah, look. Well, as he says, he, he's named Thomas More after a Catholic who died for his faith because it's the whole romantic thing, um, rather than because he looks like Mark Rylance. But uh, Emma has uh, has directions to a farmhouse, and when she gets there, it's Simon's house, and they uh, start tearing their clothes. They're so uh, the, the chemistry between them is electric i think uh, they're, so, they're so pleased to see each other although they were uh, so excited and he, re- he reveals that he was the reporter and he does the goofy voice and um he says oh, you're going to be the richest woman in the world and she says well, i'm not interested in that i just want you and she, and she says well, i love you simon just miracle three and that's again it's the it's the just the structure of it the rule of three of incorporating that as an element into the story and then having it pay off. It's almost cheating to like draw attention to the, a rule of screenwriting and say, yes, and now we've done this. <laughs> but it works because it's the weight of the character that it's a, it's a payoff to the healing of his wounded personality. And her as well developing, and her becoming more open out of her shell the idea that before she'd met Simon, she was this artistic soul who expressed herself through her scientific research and through her scientific genius. And now she has an outlet for that in terms of her relationships with other people. And then we get the cameo from Roger Moore. Well, not quite. I mean, uh, the, the following morning, she's gone. That's and just she's... dominating my thoughts how little Roger Moore sounds like a newsread. <laughs> i When I first saw the movie, I thought, I recognize that voice. Who is that? And I couldn't work out who it was until the credit came up, which I know I'm incredibly embarrassed about because who else could it possibly be? (laughs) But um, she's gone and she's left a note and she's also left a little pin that she had from Catholic school, which is the stick man. So that then, so that's oh, oh, the origin of the stick man. That's quite once, a nice, once elegant... again, though,
1: reminding us of the character we're not really reminding us of... That That's a bit I'd snip out.
0: Well, you have to get the stick man in there somewhere, I'd say. I mean, he can't just be in the opening titles lounging around by <laughs> a swimming pool. Maybe,
1: that, you know, that's what they could have done. You're saying in the Avengers we had... Uh... Patrick McNee is the invisible character, so he was really just doing voice over. Maybe at the end they could have gone somewhere and maybe like they could have gotten the 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 center never got the back of the car and the car's being driven by a
0: stick man voiced by Roger Moore. <laughs> well, uh, given that I I feel that the film's realism and groundedness are such an important. It's near element. the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> Everything I goes out the window. Suddenly, ha- suddenly having Have an the animated- car fly. Suddenly having an animated character in the movie is going to undermine its credibility. But he, Simon, manages to intercept Emma as she's coming through the college and says, you know, "If if you think that give you know giving away secret of cold fusion to the world and and giving up on this all this money and riches is going to make." Uh and it, you know it's going to make us happy you're absolutely right and that's again it's a bit clunky but it just underlines the whole thing he's gone from being interested only in collecting his little money so that he can go off and live on an island to it doesn't matter what's, in, what's important is people it's, it's you and me it's, it's, it's connection it's, it's romance oh I want to go and hug someone <laughs> come here you <laughs>
1: Look, I might live in California, but I'm not that (laughs)
0: touchy-feely. You can take the man out of Bradford. Oh, absolutely.
1: You see, there there we've got this weird thing then that, in one way, it's been setting up as an origin for the saint. But then, if he wants to settle down, the thing about the saint is he lives for adventure. He has this on-again, off-again relationship. He has this girlfriend in the 30s, Patricia Holm, who he's... He doesn't seem to be that bothered about cheating on. And in various ideas for a son of the saint, she would have been the mother of the saint's child. So, if you want to take this as just a movie in its own right, that's actually the end of the adventurer character. This is actually how a man discovered there were more important things than theft and capering around. It's always that problem of when the guy gets the girl at the end of the film, and you know that when, if this is being said, there was a franchise, she's not going to be there in the next one. It feels like a cheat. It's again, right? So if we have our next Daniel Craig Bond film, w- what are we going to do about the girl he was he was with at the end of Spectre?
0: I'm drawing my finger across my throat.
1: Yes, but it it feels. When you rewatch Spectre, it's, it, will, it will be a bit of a, oh, yes.
0: Given that she's such a boring character and has no chemistry with Daniel Craig, it's really no great loss.
1: No, but it's, it's just the thing that afflicts multi-movie franchises. You can't have him not get the girl, but you can't have him keep the girl.
0: Well, the Mission Impossible movies actually found a way around this because in the third one, he's started to settle down. And he has settled down by the end of the movie. But by the fourth one, he's single again because he's had to fake his own death and ensure that his, I think, fiancé slash wife, one or the other, is sort of looked after. And she gets a cameo at the end of the movie where he's just sort of keeping an eye on her to make sure she's okay and that she's, she's happy in her life. And I thought that was a kind of an alternate way of getting around that problem that they can't that, that you know it's it's and in, I think it's in the fifth one he doesn't really have a love interest at all but actually no that's wrong he does but it's meant that you know they can they're being split up for reasons that make sense within the world of the story and it doesn't feel forced i think if there was to if there had been a second saint movie you you need to bring back elizabeth shoot and you need to maintain that relationship because that's the keystone the whole story is built on but have that develop in some way as to put the saint on his next adventure, or have her be hit—kind of his contact in the legitimate world, where he's sort of flitting oh, around. they Split up, but they're still friends. Oh, I, I wouldn't like that. I'm a—I uh, mean, it's—it seems ridiculous, but I'm—I'm I'm a shipper for them. Even though they're actually, <laughs> they actually do get together. And oh, no, I know they have to stay together; otherwise, love is dead. But Simon sneaks into her lecture, disguises the reporter again, and sits right next to Inspector Teal. And basically trolls him while he's there. And I like that. It's this and as the the new version of the uh, Edwin Astley's Saint theme plays, very sort of playful music. So yeah, he's he's. He's a, he's a charmer. He's a daredevil. He's a wit. He's cocking a snook to authority. But uh, they realize who he is and they chase him out. And they manage just to get away in the nick of time. And he plays the saint theme on his car horn as he goes by. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, yeah, they probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I, li- I do like him just some smiling and waving at the police as he goes past. And not in any disguise. That's his, that's his real face. So now he's able to present his real self to the world. Just how I read it, and as he drives away, he puts on the radio, and a familiar voice tells us you know that, that mysteriously millions have been donated from Tretiak's fortune to the needy all over the world, and to set up a new foundation to fund cold fusion research. And as he's driving, the light coming through the windscreen just catches his hair, just a certain way, almost, <laughs> almost as though it were a halo. Yes. And then we get a kick-ass Duran Duran song on the soundtrack for the uh, end credits. Now, I think overall, it's a thrilling adventure movie. It has tremendous depth that's almost unique for this kind of movie. It has terrific characters. It has a wonderful romance that i really engage with. That I, yeah, As you can tell by the fact that I'm incredibly over-enthusiastic about it, I really, really love it's... I I understand your point about how far it diverges from the character of the saint. But there have been so many... I mean, if you look at other very popular fictional characters, there are ways of doing them in very different ways that I think can still remain true to the essence of the character. And I think that... But then is- there
1: comes a point when it's gone. It's very hard to... T- it's like, you know, the whole Washington's ex... All that's been replaced is the head and the handle. Tr- that's Trigger's broom. Yes, that, yeah. Um, and somebody's ship, if we were more
0: literate. Oh we're, but. oh, we're not, though, are we? Well, I'm not.
1: So there comes a point where if Sherlock Holmes starts guessing, something's broken. And and so really, as the, the saint is an evolving character, but what the common thread is... His suavity, he he uses paper thin disguises, and tends to use pseudonyms that have "st." Sebastian Tombs is a is one that keeps cropping up, and his high living. Uh, so it's not so much a case of the, this is an insult to the character. It's like you you've saddled yourself with something. You've saddled yourself with a brand name that you hoped would make this a sellable quality but it's it's ended up backfiring you redub this and call it the venerable or the blessed or the angel whatever the martyr the guardian you've got angel a fantastic original character with echoes of the saint but as soon as you said this is the saint you've and then you've delivered something else it's it's if this had been
0: son of the saint and there had been some kind of element during the story where the lead character discovers that he's the son of the famous Simon Templar and sort of follows in his footsteps. But otherwise, the movie is the same. How would you feel about it then? It's not a matter of how I
1: feel about it, because this is a fantastic example of something that's not really my thing. Even a really good 90s action film is somewhat wasted on me but i think it would have avoided a lot of critical sniping and snarking and it would have cited i think partially also people were taking out their anger from all the other 90s movies of 60s tv series on on this film where
0: it's just like oh here's another one it's a shame then that that i, I mean some critics can be very vindictive and unprepared to accept something on its own terms and I, I, as you know as we've seen with Uh, a certain upcoming uh, remake of a 1984 movie, which I'm planning on watching later this evening. Starman. Oh, right. (laughs) No, Ghostbusters.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. I I, 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 I didn't heard about that. You see, see, I've I've never seen Ghostbusters. So I I have no dog in this
0: fight. Well, you've got a treat in store, because it's a terrific movie.
1: Well, I have to watch some Indiana Jones films before that, because... Ronald Lacey's in one of them.
0: Ronald Lacey's in the first one. Hmm. That's the good one. Well, it's the best one.
1: But I, I think maybe the problem is this, maybe there were people who wanted Mission Impossible to bomb and it didn't, so the saint came along and it's like, right,
0: <laughs> knives it's, out. It's the other guy from Top Gun. But on its own terms, I think that it is a terrific movie. And I think the importance of the the changed ending can't be underestimated. Because rather than making it pushing it into this grim and dark and tragic tone, instead, it goes for positivity, of optimism, of lightness, of the villains being shown to be villainous, of being exposed as evil and being punished, and the hero the, the, become you know, discovering the, the virtues of goodness and kindness and not you know, having a big fight in a burning building, which is something we've seen a thousand times before. Instead, he's uh, running a merry dance around the police while wearing a pair of funny teeth. Okay, here's an idea. We're talking about this
1: re- rejigging this son of the saint, so we've got an excuse from being different. So we find him getting increasingly inspired by tales of his father's daring do. And then at some point he finds out that he just he reads an account and he suddenly realises his father killed a lot of people. And there we put him at that crossroads, and it's like, no, I am not the saint.
0: Human life is important. So, are you trying to figure out ways for him to not be the saint?
1: No, just thinking that would be it would be interesting to start out with him inspired by the saint and then reach a sudden point where it's like, right, this is. It'd just be an interesting moment for him to to have him have this hanging over him, this inspiration, and then have it turn sour on him and make his own path.
0: Yeah, I think it is. It is that kind of compassion in him that makes him interesting as a character, and it's that that would cause that that break. It's just it just seems to be so unique in action cinema that there's a character, a leading character, who you genuinely like, and who is charming and witty and entertaining and doesn't go around killing people and is more interested in human beings than wealth or victory. That's what makes it special for me. That's what makes it, you know, my number two favorite movie. I love it. Well, let's
1: let somebody make a really definitive modern movie of The Saint, as written. So we can get that out of our system. There was, of course, a 2013 television pilot which had Roger Moore and Ian Ogilvy in it. And I can't quite tell from the trailer w- what their role is in the whole
0: thing. I think that Ian Ogilvy was a supporting role as some kind of villainous broker, and Roger Moore was just a very brief cameo.
1: Well, uh, judging by the trailer, they have a conversation at some point. Uh, Ogilvy and Moore talk to each other
0: about over the phone though
1: yes but so let's get that out of our system and then we can come back to this 1997 movie the scent and show it to everybody who's intending to make a superhero film because
0: you think this is a benchmark of how to do a a likable hero
1: a likable hero who doesn't kill and does as much thinking as he does fighting like doctor who Yes. Well, I have my own
0: issues with Doctor Who. (laughs) Well, I think I've thoroughly convinced you. So, um... My work here's done. It's time to go back to limbo for me. I'm going to put on my wings and I'm going to fly away. I was going to say, what's that above your head? What's that
1: sound? (whistles) Oh, look, you even got the proper (laughs) halo
0: sound. Well... No, they do call me the famous Jeremy Phillips. Thanks to Tilt for making the time for this podcast and for assisting with the editing. Cinema Limbo is on iTunes, with more than a dozen episodes now available, so please subscribe, download and review before your tea gets cold. However, until next time... You don't believe in any of this cold fusion mumbo-jumbo, do you? Goodbye. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com.